Section 21 of Volume 1A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1A, Section 21. Appendix 1, Part 1. The Anglo-Saxon Government and Manners. The government of the Germans, and that of all the northern nations who established themselves on the ruins of Rome, was always extremely free, and those fierce people, accustomed to independence and inured to arms, were more guided by persuasion than authority in the submission which they paid to their princes. The military despotism which had taken place in the Roman Empire, and which, previously to the eruption of those conquerors, had sunk the genius of men and destroyed every noble principle of science and virtue, was unable to resist the vigorous efforts of a free people, and Europe, as from a new epoch, rekindled her ancient spirit and shook off the base servitude to arbitrary will and authority under which she had so long labored. The free constitutions then established, however impaired by the encroachments of succeeding princes, still preserve an air of independence and legal administration which distinguished the European nations, and if that part of the globe maintained sentiments of liberty, honor, equity, and valor superior to the rest of mankind, it owes these advantages chiefly to the seeds implanted by those generous barbarians. The Saxons who subdued Britain as they enjoyed great liberty in their own country, obstinately retained that invaluable possession in their new settlement, and they imported into this land the same principles of independence which they had inherited from their ancestors. The chieftains, for such they were more properly than kings or princes, who commanded them in those military expeditions, still possessed a very limited authority, and as the Saxons exterminated rather than subdued the ancient inhabitants they were indeed transplanted into a new territory but preserved unaltered all their civil and military institutions the language was pure saxon even the names of places which often remain while the tongue entirely changes were almost all affixed by the conquerors the manners and customs were wholly german and the same picture of a fierce and bold liberty which is drawn by the masterly pen of Tacitus, will suit those founders of the English government. The king, so far from being invested with arbitrary power, was only considered as the first among the citizens. His authority depended more on his personal qualities than on his station. He was even so far on a level with the people that a stated price was fixed for his head and a legal fine was levied upon his murderer which though proportionate to his station and superior to that paid for the life of a subject was a sensible mark of his subordination to the community it is easy to imagine that an independent people so little restrained by law and cultivated by science would not be very strict in maintaining a regular succession of their princes though they paid great regard to the royal family and ascribed to it an undisputed superiority they either had no rule or none that was steadily observed in filling the vacant throne and present convenience in that emergency was more attended to than general principles 
we are not however to suppose that the crown was considered as altogether elective and that a regular plan was traced by the constitution for supplying by suffrages of the people every vacancy made by the demise of the first magistrate if any king left a son of an age and capacity fit for government the young prince naturally stepped into the throne if he was a minor his uncle or the next prince of the blood was promoted to the government and left the sceptre to his posterity any sovereign by taking previous measures with the leading men had it greatly in his power to appoint his successor all these changes and indeed the orderly administration of government required the express concurrence or at least the tacit acquiescence of the people but possession however obtained was extremely apt to secure their obedience and the idea of any right which was once excluded was but feeble and imperfect this is so much the case in all barbarous monarchies and occurs so often in the history of the anglo-saxons that we cannot consistently entertain any other notion of their government the idea of a hereditary succession in authority is so natural to men and is so much fortified by the usual rule in transmitting private possessions that it must retain a great influence on every society which does not exclude it by the refinements of a republican constitution but as there is a material difference between government and private possessions and every man is not as much qualified for exercising the one as for enjoying the other a people who are not sensible to the general advantages attending a fixed rule are apt to make great leaps in the succession and frequently to pass over persons who had he possessed the requisite years and abilities would have been thought entitled to the sovereignty thus these monarchies are not strictly speaking either elective or hereditary and though the destination of a prince may often be followed in appointing his successor they can as little be regarded as wholly testamentary the states by their suffrage may sometimes establish a sovereign but they more frequently recognize the person whom they find established a few great men take the lead the people overawed and influenced acquiesced in the government and the reigning prince provided he be of the royal family, passes undisputably for the legal sovereign. It is confessed that our knowledge of the Anglo-Saxon history and antiquities is too imperfect to afford us means of determining with certainty all the prerogatives of the crown and the privileges of the people, or of giving an exact delineation of that government. It is probable, also, that the constitution might be somewhat different in the different kingdoms of the heptarchy, and that it changed considerably during the course of six centuries which elapsed from the first invasion of the saxons to the norman conquest but most of these differences and changes with their cause and effects are unknown to us it only appears that at all times and in all kingdoms there was a national council called a wittengemot or assembly of the wise men for that is the import of the term whose consent was requisite for enacting laws and for ratifying the chief acts of public administration the preambles of all the laws of ethelbert ina alfred edward the elder athelstand edmund edgar ethelred and edward the confessor even those to the laws of canute though a kind of conqueror put this matter beyond controversy and carried proofs everywhere of a limited and legal government but who were the constituent members of this wittengemut has not been determined with certainty by antiquaries 
it is agreed that the bishops and abbots were an essential part and it is also evident from the tenor of those ancient laws that the wittenkemut enacted statutes which regulated the ecclesiastical as well as civil government and that those dangerous principles by which the church is totally severed from the state were hitherto unknown to the anglo-saxons it also appears that the aldermen or governors of counties who after the danish times were often called earls were admitted into this council and gave their consent to the public statutes but besides the prelates and aldermen there is also mention of the whites or wise men as a component part of the wittengemut but who these were is not so clearly ascertained by the laws or the history of that period the matter would probably be of difficult discussion even were it examined impartially but as our modern parties have chosen to divide on this point the question has been disputed with greater obstinacy and the arguments on both sides have become on that account the more captious and deceitful our monarchical faction maintains that these whites or sapients were the judges or men learned in the law the popular faction asserts them to be representatives of the boroughs or what we now call the commons the expressions employed by all ancient historians in mentioning the wittengemot seem to contradict the latter supposition the members are almost always called the principes satraps optimates magnates proceres terms which seem to suppose an aristocracy and to exclude the commons the boroughs also from the low state of commerce were so small and so poor and the inhabitants lived in such dependence on the great men that it seems nowise probable that they would be admitted as part of the national councils the commons are well known to have had no share in the government established by the franks burgundians and other northern nations and we may conclude that the saxons who remained longer barbarous and uncivilized than those tribes would never think of conferring such an extraordinary privilege on trade and industry the military profession alone was honorable among all those conquerors the warriors subsisted by their possessions in land they became considerable by their influence over their vassals retainers tenants and slaves and it requires strong proof to convince us that they would admit any of a rank so much inferior as the burgesses to share with them in legislative authority tacitus indeed affirms that among the ancient germans the consent of all members of the community was required in every important deliberation but he speaks not of representatives and this ancient practice mentioned by the roman historian could only have place in small tribes where every citizen might without inconvenience be assembled upon any extraordinary emergency after principalities became extensive after the difference of property had formed distinctions more important than those which rose from personal strength and valor we may conclude that the national assemblies must have been more limited in their number and composed only of the more considerable citizens but though we must exclude the burgesses or commons from the saxon wittengemot there is some necessity for supposing that this assembly consisted of other members than the prelates abbots aldermen and the judges or privy council for as all these excepting some of the ecclesiastics were anciently appointed by the king had there been no other legislative authority 
the royal power had been in a great measure absolute contrary to the tenor of all the historians and to the practice of all the northern nations we may therefore conclude that the more considerable proprietors of land were without any election constituent members of the national assembly there is reason to think that forty hides or between four and five thousand acres was the estate requisite for entitling the possessors to this honourable privilege we find a passage in an ancient author by which it appears that a person of very noble birth even one allied to the crown was not esteemed a princeps the term usually employed by ancient historians when the wittengemote is mentioned till he had acquired a fortune of that amount nor need we imagine that the public council would become disorderly or confused by admitting so great a multitude the landed property of england was probably in few hands during the saxon times at least during the latter part of that period and as men had hardly any ambition to attend those public councils there was no danger of the assemblies being too numerous for the dispatch of the little business which was brought before them it is certain that whatever we may determine concerning the constituent members of the wittengemote in whom the, with the king the legislature resided the anglo-saxon government in the period preceding the norman conquest was becoming extremely aristocratical the royal authority was very limited the people even if admitted to that assembly were of little or no weight and consideration we have hence given us in historians of the great power and riches of particular noblemen and it could not but happen after the abolition of the heptarchy when the king lived at a distance from the provinces that those great proprietors who resided on their estates would much augment their authority over their vassals and retainers and over all the inhabitants of the neighbourhood hence the immeasurable power assumed by harold godwin leofric seward morcar edwin edric and alfric who controlled the authority of the kings and rendered themselves quite necessary in the government the two latter though detested by the people on account of their joining a foreign enemy still preserved their power and influence and we may therefore conclude that their authority was founded not on popularity but on family rights and possessions there is one athelstan mentioned in the reign of the king of that name who is called alderman of all england and is said to be half king though the monarch himself was a prince of valour and abilities we find that in later saxon times and in these alone the great offices went from father to son and became in a manner hereditary in the families the circumstances attending the invasions of the danes would also serve much to increase the power of the principal nobility those freebooters made unexpected inroads on all quarters and there was a necessity that each county should resist them by its own force and under the conduct of its own nobility and its own magistrates for the same reason that a general war managed by the united efforts of the whole state commonly augments the power of the crown those private wars and inroads turned to the advantage of the aldermen and nobles among that military and turbulent people so averse to commerce and the arts and so little inured to industry justice was commonly very ill administered and great oppression and violence seemed to have prevailed these disorders would be increased by the 
exorbitant power of the aristocracy and would in their turn contribute to increase it men not daring to rely on the guardianship of the laws were obliged to devote themselves to the service of some chieftain whose orders they followed even to the disturbance of the government or the injury of their fellow-citizens and who afforded them in return protection from any insult or injustice by strangers hence we find by the extracts which dr brady has given us from domesday that almost all the inhabitants even of towns had placed themselves under the clientship of some particular nobleman whose patronage they purchased by annual payments and whom they were obliged to consider as their sovereign more than the king himself or even the legislature a client though a freeman was supposed so much to belong to his patron that his murderer was obliged by law to pay a fine to the latter as a compensation for his loss in like manner as he paid a fine to the master for the murder of his slave men who were of a more considerable rank but not powerful enough each to support himself by his own independent authority entered into formal confederacies with each other and composed a kind of separate community which rendered itself formidable to all aggressors dr hicks has preserved a curious saxon bond of this kind which he calls a sodalitum and which contains many particulars characteristical of the manners and customs of the times all the associates are there said to be gentlemen of cambridgeshire and they swear before the holy relics to observe their confederacy and to be faithful to each other they promise to bury any of the associates who dies in whatever place he has appointed to contribute to his funeral charges and to attend to his interment and whoever is wanting in this last duty binds himself to pay a measure of honey when any of the associates is in danger and calls for the assistance of his fellows they promise besides flying to his succour to give information to the sheriff and if he be negligent in protecting the person exposed to danger they engage to levy a fine of one pound upon him if the president of the society himself be wanting in this particular he binds himself to pay one pound unless he has the reasonable excuse of sickness or of duty to his superior when any of the associates is murdered they are to exact eight pounds from the murderer and if he refuse to pay it they are to prosecute him for the sum at their joint expense if any of the associates who happen to be poor kill a man the society are to contribute by a certain proportion to pay his fine a mark apiece if the fine be seven hundred shillings less if the person killed be a clown or a cyril the half of that sum again if he be a welchman but where any of the associates kill a man wilfully and without provocation he must himself pay the fine if any of the associates kill any of his fellows in a like criminal manner besides paying the usual fine to the relations of the deceased he must pay eight pounds to the society or renounce the benefit of it in which case they bind themselves under the penalty of one pound never to eat or drink with him except in the presence of the king bishop or alderman there are other regulations to protect themselves and their servants from all injuries to revenge such as are committed and to prevent their giving abusive language to each other and the fine which they engage to pay for this last offence 
is a measure of honey it is not to be doubted but a confederacy of this kind must have been a great source of friendship and attachment when men lived in perpetual danger from enemies robbers and oppressors and received protection chiefly from their personal valour and from the assistance of their friends and patrons as animosities were then more violent connections were also more intimate whether voluntary or derived from blood the most remote degree of propinquity was regarded an indelible memory of benefits was preserved severe vengeance was taken for injuries both from a point of honour and as the best means of future security and the civil union being weak many private engagements were contracted in order to supply its place and to procure men that safety which the laws and their own innocence were not alone able to ensure them end of section twenty one recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington